Amen. Yeah, you may be seated and go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Well, it is September, and that means that school has started again, and that always reminds me of uh, joys that I had in my school days and some not-so-good experiences that I had in my school days. Uh, The not-so-good experience could be summed up in one word, and that word would be math. Um, I I was not uh, compatible with my brain and my knowledge and my abilities. I remember my math teacher specifically for Algebra 1 and 2 and pre-calculus. I took pre-calculus in uh, my senior year of high school. And he would, he was a very sweet old gentleman. He would, after we took exams, he would write out kind of like a bell curve, like a median curve for all of the scores that we got on the exams and and put them on a line of, okay, how many people got an A? Here are the numbers of A's. How many people got B's? Here's the numbers of B's. How many people got C's, D's, F's, so on and so forth. And he would, he would chart it on the whiteboard with a you know, dry erase pen. And so I remember taking an exam that I felt like I did an excellent job on this exam. I, I don't know if you feel that way about exams. You feel like, man, I aced that. And then you get the test back and you realize I was wrong. <laughs> I didn't ace that at all. Uh, we sat down and we looked at the, the exam and it was so heavily weighted over on the A's and B's. There were no C's, there were no D's, and there was one F. It was a 51%. So all of these A's, all these B's, and one F. And he's passing out the exams. We look on the, the whiteboard. And I, because I'm a dumb high schooler, I just blurt out, man, what idiot got the 51? Right? This is an easy exam. Look, A's and B's. Come on. And he, turned, he would always uh, hand them back to us face down. Um, so you flip it over, you see the score. This idiot got the <laughs> The 51. I don't know if you've had moments in life where you look at something and you say, well, that's not me. And then you realize, oh, that is me. Sometimes we look at something with disgust or disdain. But when we look a little bit closer, we actually see that we're more like that thing than we would care to admit. I believe that's the case with the Pharisees as we see them in the New Testament. They are the bad guys. They're absolutely ridiculous. They're absolutely uh, saying ludicrous things, outlandish things, and they will ultimately kill Jesus. They're the bad guys. So we look at them often when we're reading the New Testament and we think, man, these idiots. And then we realize, in actuality, I think that we're more like them than we would ever care to admit. What idiots would do these things? Oh, we would. This morning in our text, as we finish out Mark chapter 2, I want us to see three ways. I believe the Lord would have for us this morning three ways that we need to respond to Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, such that we would not be like the Pharisees. Because remember, we've been seeing all these conflicts. There's five different conflicts. There's staccato fashion, Jesus versus the Pharisees versus the religious leaders. They do not like him and he keeps doing things that angers them. Son, your sins are forgiven. No one can forgive sins but God alone. Yes, and that's why I'm gonna heal this man, this paralytic. And he claims to be God. It angered the Pharisees, the religious leaders. 
And Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's a friend of sinners and that angers the religious leaders. Why are your disciples not fasting? That angers the religious leaders. Here, they break the Pharisees' traditional Sabbath day laws. That angers them. And then next Lord's Day, we will see just the final exclamation point where Jesus is going to go into their synagogue and heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And that's going to seal his fate. They're going to seek his death from that point forward. Three ways that we need to respond to Jesus such that we will not be like the Pharisees that we see this morning. Let's read our text, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. And it happened that Jesus was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to Jesus, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. These are the very words of our living, gracious, and holy God. Let's ask him to write their truths on our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. How precious it is that we get to gather and open the Bible. That we all have copies in front of us, on our laps, in our phones. What a joy. What a rich blessing. And yet, like the Pharisees, we have read so many times, but haven't seen, haven't understood, haven't heard. We hear, but we aren't hearing. And so, too, just like the Pharisees, Jesus might say to us this morning, have you never read? Have you never read the section in Mark's gospel where my disciples broke the traditional Pharisaical laws? Have you never read that I am Lord of the Sabbath? Have you never read what the gospel is? And so, Father, we come before you and we say, with all humility, we know, we know that we don't know. We know that we cannot manufacture a heart that would be willing to receive. Our hearts naturally want to kick against you. And so we come before you and we plead with you, change our hearts, change our affections, change our love, change our desires, change our wills. And God, I pray specifically this morning that you would graciously guard CBC from ever living out these realities that we'll see from the Pharisees. Guard us from legalism, guard us from judgmentalism, guard us from a hostility towards one another where we look down on each other. May the gospel inform all that we do, all that we say. And Holy Spirit, open our eyes now to behold wonderful things from your law. We love you, we rely on you, and we are so excited 
to see Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. The disciples and Jesus in verse 23 are passing through the grain fields. They're passing through on the Sabbath. They're probably walking either to or from a synagogue, most likely because it is the Sabbath day. King James Version of the Bible says that this is a field of corn. It's a corn field. Apparently in 1611, when the King James Version of the Bible was translated, they didn't understand the word for grain here. It's not a corn field. It's grain. And God had graciously given an allowance in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, for travelers who are walking by a grain field to be able to take a piece of that grain. You couldn't put a sickle in and harvest it and reap it, but you could just take a piece of it with your hand and uh, maybe you uh, smush it around in your hand and uh, make a little paste out of it and it, it becomes a little bit gummy. Or maybe it's like a sunflower seed. You could enjoy a little snack. Deuteronomy 23, 25, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you can pluck the heads with your hand. But don't wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. Don't go reaping all their grain. Just grab a couple, enjoy it, snack on it. The law was there, graciously given by God as a provision for these travelers who are hungry. They were not in violation of the law. They were in violation of the Pharisees' law. Jesus never violated the law of God. He never violated one aspect. He obeyed it perfectly, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus says, I came to fulfill it. So he's not abolishing the law. They're picking the heads of grain and the Pharisees, verse 24, they say to Jesus, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Again, this isn't breaking God's law. This is breaking the Pharisees' law. This is a violation of the Pharisees' tradition. They had placed their own rules on top of God's rules. God had given the Sabbath as a day of rest, reflection, worship. It was supposed to serve man and to highlight God's provision. And the main, um, the main requirement that was found in the Sabbath was to cease your labor. But what constitutes labor? How do we define that? How do you know if you're working or not? How do you know if you're breaking this law or not? How do we live this command out? So what the Pharisees did is they took simple laws, don't work on the Sabbath, and extrapolated and developed them into these complex written traditional laws. It's called the halakha, which means walking in Hebrew. How do you walk in the law? We've got the law from God, but how do you live this out? How do you apply this? How do you walk in this? The Bible is very clear, Exodus chapter 34, verse 21, you shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. So don't plow, don't harvest, you rest. But in the Old Testament, there are five passages that deal with the Sabbath and what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. And from those five passages, the rabbis brought 39 different categories of things you could or couldn't do that totaled in the Talmud 1,521 verses of prohibitions for the Sabbath. So five passages in the Old Testament that tell you from God what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And that translates in the rabbinical tradition and the Pharisees to 1,500 verses of things you could or couldn't do. Let me give you an example of some of them. On the Sabbath the rabbis said this. Because again, they're trying to say, what is work? What's ceasing from work? We need to know. And so we're just going to make a list to make sure everybody's complying with the rule. You couldn't carry a burden 
that weighed more than a dried fig or half a fig carried two times. If you put an olive in your mouth and rejected it because it was bad, you couldn't put a whole one in the next time because the palate had tasted the flavor of a whole olive and thus you had to leave it alone. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with your other hand on the Sabbath, it was a sin. If you caught it in the same hand, it wasn't. If a person was in one place and he reached out his arm for food and the Sabbath overtook him, he would have to drop the food and not return his arm or else he would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath and would be sinning. If you were a tailor, you couldn't carry your needle. A scribe couldn't carry their pen. A pupil couldn't carry their books. No clothing could be examined on the Sabbath day lest somehow you find lice or inadvertently kill it. Wool couldn't be dyed, nothing could be sold, nothing could be bought, nothing could be washed. You couldn't even send a letter to somebody else, even if it was a pagan sending that letter. Even if you, as a Jew, said, I'll give it to a pagan, let him do it. No, you couldn't do that. Couldn't light a fire, couldn't wash anything. Cold water could be poured onto warm, but warm water couldn't be poured onto cold. An egg could not be boiled, even if all you did was put it in sand and the sand heated it up. You couldn't bathe for fear that when the water fell off, it might wash the floor, and therefore you've done work in washing the floor. If a candle was lit, you couldn't put it out. If it wasn't lit, you couldn't light it. Chairs couldn't be moved because if you moved them, they might make a rut on the ground, and that would be plowing. Women couldn't look into a glass mirror because they might find a white hair and be tempted to pull it out. Women couldn't wear jewelry because jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. A radish couldn't be left in salt because it would make it pickle, and that's work. No more grain could be pickled than you could, could be plucked than you could put in a lamb's mouth. That was uh, the amount. Couldn't sew more than one stitch. You couldn't write more than one letter. You couldn't wear false teeth on the Sabbath because you'd be wearing a burden. You couldn't even untie a knot. The Pharisees had placed so many burdens on the people through the Sabbath. Even here in this text, as the disciples are walking, maybe even their walking is a violation of the Pharisees' rule of the Sabbath. But for sure, their picking of the heads of grain would have constituted reaping according to the Pharisees. Now, please hear me clearly. The divine intention of the Sabbath was in no way infringed by the disciples plucking the heads of grain. It wasn't that they were breaking God's law, it was that they were breaking the Pharisees' law. And that leads to our first point this morning. I want us, as we seek to follow Jesus, we must beware of becoming like the Pharisees. And the first way that we do that, number one, beware of placing your application of the law above the heart of the law. Beware of placing your application of the law above the heart of the law. This is what the Pharisees did. The disciples didn't break God's law. They broke the Pharisees' law. So the Pharisees' law was more stringent than God's law. This is legalistic traditionalism. You can tell if you're struggling with this, by the way, if you get frustrated or angry at someone for something that they did, even if God wasn't angry at the thing that they did. They broke your laws, but they didn't break God's laws. If God's not angry at them, you shouldn't be either. That's why Pharisees usually aren't happy people. They're usually very angry. They're bitter. They're offended. They're judgmental. They're opinionated. They're critical. How do we get this way? 
Nobody wakes up thinking, you know what, I want to make laws better than God makes laws because my laws are going to be better than God's laws. Nobody does that. So how do we become the Pharisees? How do we do this? How does this happen to us? Well, it'd be helpful to look at how the Pharisees began. They really started, uh, along with three other sects in Judaism, in the intertestamental period, in that period of 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. Remember, Babylon had taken over and then had fallen to Medo-Persia, and then the Old Testament closes. You do not see the word Pharisee or Sadducee in the Old Testament. They don't exist. But after the Medo-Persians were taken over by Greece, and Greece went through that process of Hellenizing everyone that they captured. You guys remember Hellenization, the process by which Greek uh, people would come in and they would say, you must be like us. Remember, we've talked about Rome before. Rome came in and said, you know what? Keep your puppet religion. Keep your puppet politics, right? King Herod, who's he? The king is Caesar. But King Herod reigns as king. Why? Because he's paid a lot of money to Rome. And they say, you can have your puppet uh, politics and, and let us control you through those puppet politics. But go ahead and have it. Have your religion. Have whatever you want. You don't need to worship our gods. Just do whatever you want to do. Just don't fight against us and pay taxes. That's all we ask. Greece was different. Greece would say, you need to do everything the way we do. You need to talk the way we do. By the way, that's why we have the New Testament written in Greek because of the process of Hellenization. You need to talk the way we do, write the way we do, speak the way we do. You need to worship our gods. You need to bow down and follow them. Your God is no God. You need to follow our gods. And because of that pressure upon the Jewish people, followers of Yahweh, being told by the Greeks you need to worship our gods. Four different people groups came out of that pressurized situation. One group said, you know what? This really isn't that big of a deal. We know in our heads and in our hearts that as we bow down and worship these Greek gods, we know they're not real and we know our God is real. But we also don't want to die. So we'll go ahead and compromise. We'll be fine. God knows our hearts. We'll go through the external motions. We aren't meaning it. And we'll worship their gods externally, but inside we'll worship our God. That group of people, compromisers, they became the Sadducees. Those are the Sadducees, compromisers. You know, it, it, does the resurrection even exist, right? We're going to get to that at the end of the Gospel of Mark. The Sadducees say, do we even believe in the resurrection? Do we even believe in the Bible? I don't even know if it's real. That's the Sadducees. The second group of people said, you know what? We got to get out of here. This is a pressurized situation. We need to go hide somewhere. We got to become monks, live monastically, and run away from this situation so that they can't tell us what to do and nobody touches us. These are the Essenes. The Essenes said, you know, we're just going to run away and hide ourselves. We are going to not be in the world at all. We're not going to be of the world, but we're not even going to be in the world. We're going to run away from problems and trouble. The third group said, you know what? We'll kill you. You fight. Uh, against us to try and get us to bow down to your God? No, in the name of Yahweh, we'll fight back. These are the zealots. And then a fourth group said, you know what? We're just going to obey God. And if it means that we die, we die. But we're not going to bow down to your gods. We're not going to run away. We're not going to kill you. We're going to follow Yahweh. And if it means we die, we die. That last group is the Pharisees. So my question to you is, of those four groups, which would you want to be a part of in their inception? I hope you would not want to be a part of the Sadducees, compromisers. 
I hope you do not want to be a part of the Essenes. Just remove yourself entirely. Be a monk. I hope you do not want to be a zealot. You know, it's, now it's time to fight. I hope you'd all be in the Pharisees' camp. The Pharisees began by saying, you know, we're going to obey God, even if we die. I hope we're the closest to the Pharisees out of those four. In fact, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, the Pharisees were the closest to Jesus out of all of those groups. They were more like Jesus and the Essenes than the Zealots and the Sadducees. The Pharisees didn't cut themselves off from society like the Essenes. The Pharisees didn't compromise with Greece and Rome like the Sadducees. The Pharisees didn't want to overthrow the government through military might like the Zealots. They began with a good and genuine desire to obey God. And they knew we have two main external signs of our obedience to Yahweh. We have two main external signs as a Jew, circumcision and Sabbath keeping. Those are the main external representations of the law for us to show that we're Jews. And so what they said to the Greeks is, you know what? We will not bow down and worship your gods. We will follow Yahweh. And in fact, and this became their motto, in fact, we are going to build rules around our rules to keep our rules safe. The Bible says, keep the Sabbath, don't work. We're going to build walls around that so that you can't get to us and force us to disobey God. So the intention wasn't wrong. The heart was right. But trusting in your rules and making your rules equal with God's rules is wrong. It is so dangerous to confuse what God has actually said with religion and tradition. And then to look down on other people who don't agree with you. This is what the Pharisees did. They started to make those rules to protect their laws, God's law. And then as they made those rules, they ended up saying those are equal with God's rules. And then they said they're actually better than God's rules. And if you don't follow them, if you don't follow our practice and you're sinning against God. Brothers and sisters, our practices have no authority. Don't force anyone around you to adopt your practices. There are a multiplicity of practices, but don't transfer biblical authority to those practices. This is what I think we struggle with all the time. We do things and we do things for reasons. I know we're not mindlessly doing things, but as we do something and somebody asks us, instead of just saying, I do it because I like doing this, what we say is we have to ground it in a biblical text. And as we ground it in a text, now we have an authority on our practice to say, I do it because God says it. Jesus doesn't want us to put rules around rules for other people. The Bible has rules. Don't put rules around those rules for other people. This is legalism. Now, just a quick statement on legalism. When does something become legalism? Here's a question for you. Is it wrong to make rules for yourself that are outside of Scripture in order to help you keep the Scriptures? Is that wrong? So is it wrong for you to make rules that are outside of the Bible in order to help you keep the Bible. It's not wrong at all. In fact, I know some of you who do that. Say, you know what? I'm not going to touch alcohol. I'm not even going to touch it. I'm not even going to drink it. Why? Because you know the Bible says don't be drunk, and if you don't ever drink alcohol, then you can never disobey that command. Is that wrong for you to say, I'm just not going to go there? No, that's not wrong. When does it become wrong? When you say, and you can't either. You can't either. I have a rule that I've taken, I've adopted outside of the Bible that will help me keep the Bible. That's fine. But it becomes legalism if, number one, you push that on somebody else and say, you need to keep it too, just like the Pharisees did. 
Or number two, you say, and I trust my own righteousness and my own ability to keep the law because of my rules. You trust in your rules, you're gonna break those rules. Don't trust in your rules. They will never keep you righteous, make you righteous. The Pharisees didn't do that. The Pharisees trusted their rules and they pushed their rules on other people. I love how Paul talks about this in Romans 14. You have to be willing to live with gray areas. Romans 14, there are two people that are doing diametrically opposed things. Like literally what they're doing are the polar opposites. And Paul says, God actually approves of both of them. Neither one's wrong. They're both okay. And we look at that and we think, this is crazy. The Pharisees would have said, no, there's one right way to do every single thing in the the world. And so that's why they made the Talmud. It's easier to enforce the Talmud because it's so specific. I can tell if you're obeying or not. It's harder to enforce a law that just says, don't work. That gets to the heart. Well, what does that mean? What does work look like? We need to be aware of placing our application of the law above the heart of the law. Let's, let's think about this practically. In not making our application absolute and authoritative, how you choose to apply the Bible and live the Bible out, you cannot make that application absolute and authoritative. Let me give you some examples of some just hot button issues that become just a, a, a massive disagreement and we become just like the Pharisees. How about where you, where you send your kids to school? There are some parents who would say, if you do not homeschool your child, you are in sin. Show me a verse. Show me a verse. They'll go to Deuteronomy 6, which that's not what that's saying. Show me a verse. That's not in the Bible. And if you say that that is a biblical principle, you must homeschool your kids, then if somebody around you doesn't homeschool their kids, you then say you're sinning. And you look down on them and you judge them just like the Pharisees do. There are some on the other side that say, if you are a godly person, godly parent, and you want your kids to be missionaries, you're going to send them to public school. Homeschooling is running away. It's being scared and timid and fearful. So if you're going to be godly, you're going to send your kid to public school to be a missionary. Again, show me the text. You cannot look down on the other person. Private school, no, it's going to cost too much. There's a better use of your money than spending it on private education for your kids. These are judgment statements that we cannot make of each other. We can ask questions for sure to get to the heart, but we cannot make judgment statements, be critical of other people because we have made a preference and an application. This is what we're doing for our family. Never look down on other people. If it's not a biblical issue, you can't look down on other people. I already mentioned alcohol. The Bible's very clear. Don't get drunk. The Bible's also very clear that Jesus drank alcohol. It's not wrong to do that if you are of age. And if you say, you know what, it's wrong for me, and you push that on somebody else, that's pharisaical legalism. Leisure, leisurely activities. There's a lot of different things on leisurely activities that I think become conscience issues that our application of the word of God can become judgmental as we look down on others. Here's one we just experienced. I mean, we're still experiencing it to a certain degree, but here's a huge hot button one right now. Uh, Vaccines. Vaccinations. If you believe there's one right way to to deal with this issue, you're going to be pharisaical in the way you look at other people. You are. You can make decisions for yourself. Don't make decisions 
for yourself personally, decisions for everyone else. Don't make your decisions become decisions for everyone else. Don't confuse your conscience or your tradition with the word of God. And don't take your opinions and infuse them with scripture to try and make them authoritative. That's just spiritual abuse. So, if we are going to learn from this text, verses 23 and 24 very clearly teach us that we need to be aware of, a, of placing our application of the law of God above the heart of the law. The Pharisees say, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus is going to go right to the heart of this issue. And this leads us to uh, point number two. Point number one, if we are going to follow Jesus and strive not to be like Pharisees, we need to, number one, beware of placing our application of the law above the heart of the law. That's verses 23 and 24. Number two, we need to beware of getting little things right while getting the big things wrong. This is verses 25 through 26. We need to beware of getting the little things right while getting the big things wrong. Jesus answers their question in verse 25. He said to them, have you never read? This is an indictment. This is a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are experts in the law. And Jesus says, hey, that law that you claim to be an expert in, have you even read? Have you even read? And he's going to take them to 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. Have you even read what David did? So just write this down. For sake of time, we're not going to turn there. Just write down 1 Samuel 21 verses 1 through 6. You can read the whole story. I would encourage you to start in chapter 20 and go all the, all the way through 22. It's a magnificent story, helpful to see the context. But before we dive into what happened in that account, I, I want to address an issue. There's an issue here. In fact, if you were to turn to 1 Samuel 21, you would see the issue right away. Jesus says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest. In the time of Abiathar the high priest. That's a questionable phrase in a lot of people's minds because if you go to 1 Samuel 21, the very first sentence will say, David went to Ahimelech the high priest. So who is it, Ahimelech or Abiathar? Did Jesus get it wrong? I don't, know, I don't know if uh, many of you know the name Bart Ehrman. Um, he used to be a Christian. Uh, uh, he is still a, a Greek scholar, a New Testament scholar, uh, teaches, professor. Um, he walked away from the faith. Uh, he would now claim to be an agnostic atheist. And it's this verse that did it for him. It's this verse. It began his unraveling of faith. He had to write a paper on this verse in graduate school. He was trying to figure out how to reconcile the differences. And his professor said, did you ever consider that the Bible just has errors? And that began his deconstruction as he walked away from the Lord. Well, is there a contradiction here? Are there errors in the Bible? The answer is no, but it's really easy to see that here. Verse 26, in the time of Abiathar the high priest, in the time, the phrase in the time helps us know that this is around the time of or in the age of. This isn't when Abiathar was the high priest. Jesus knows it's Ahimelech who's the high priest that David goes to. What he's doing is he's saying, it'd be like if I said in the days of George Washington, that includes George Washington's dad, 
and George Washington's kids. Even if George Washington is dead, it can still be in the days of George Washington. There's a book I read many years ago called Historic Speeches, and it had a chapter called The Age of Lincoln, and underneath that title, it gave the years 1855 through 1896. The Age of Lincoln, 1855 to 1896. Anybody see why that's weird? Lincoln died in 1865. So this period goes far beyond him, but we can easily say it's the age of Lincoln because he's the most famous, most dominant figure in that time period. So too with what Jesus is saying. Ahimelech was the high priest, but he's not the most famous and most dominant one. His son, Abiathar, is. And so Jesus says, in the age of Abiathar, in the, in the time of Abiathar. Now, what's the point of what he's saying? Verse 26, when David was in need, he was hungry. During the time of Abiathar the high priest, his dad, Abiathar's dad, Ahimelech, uh, talked with David. David said, I'm hungry. Do you have any food? And Ahimelech prays. Uh, this is 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 10. Ahimelech prays and says, God, is this allowed? And God says, yes. Now, what's happening is God had a law, a ceremonial law that the consecrated showbread that was in the tabernacle would only be eaten by the priests. And here's David, not a priest, who is eating the consecrated bread. That's why Jesus says, it's not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, but David ate it and he gave it to his friends. What's happening here? Jesus is saying to preserve David was more important than to preserve the ceremonial keeping of the law. David was dying, he needed food, and to preserve his life was more important than preserving the ceremonial law. The legitimate need that David and his men had took precedence over the ceremonial law. 1 Samuel 21 is a precedent. There's a question mark, there's a gray area in this. And Jesus is saying he's not bound by the Pharisees' interpretation of a gray area issue in his life and in his disciples' life. In David's case, the priest was very, very wise. He understood that no ceremony should survive while someone dies. Ceremony is ceremony. Ritual is symbolic. You don't save a ceremony and let someone die. It has its place. Ceremonies do and traditions do. But mercy triumphs over ritual and ceremony. And here's what Jesus is doing by bringing this up. He's using in logic what we'd call an a fortiori argument, an argument from the, the greater to the lesser. He's, he's looking, showing, look at this issue. The, David and his men, the, the passage in 1 Samuel 21, they are clearly breaking a ceremony of God's written law. And God was okay with it. So how much more should you Pharisees be okay when we break your man-made traditions? That's what he's saying, an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God was okay here with David and his friends actually breaking the ceremonial law, then you should be okay, Pharisees, because we're only breaking your man-made law, not even God's law. If God permitted human need over religious ritual, then certainly human need would trump man-made burdens. The Pharisees' domestication of real faith in humanly attainable standards made it impossible for them to fathom that Christ's disciples were not breaking 
the law. And so what Jesus says is, Pharisees, you have to choose between David's practice and your protest. You can either be angry, but then you're condemning David, or you can receive David, and then you can't condemn us. What Jesus is saying here is, it doesn't matter if you get all the little things right, but you miss the big things. Jesus is not impressed when we get all the little details right in our lives if we fail to get all the big details correct. This is Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I delight in mercy and loyalty rather than sacrifice. Sacrifice is right. It's needed. It's obedience. But I would rather have a heart that is filled with mercy and doesn't sacrifice. I delight in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus condemns the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23 for neglecting what he says are the weightier portions of the law. So the law is all equally important, but there are, all, there are weightier matters. The law is all important because it's God's word, it's God's law, but there are certain matters that are more important and certain matters that are less important. We see this even in Paul, what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I declare to you what was of first importance. The Pharisees are good at tithing mint, Jesus says, but they can't even be compassionate. And what Jesus says, I'd rather you be compassionate and not tithe. If you only love getting the small things right, friends, if you are nitpicky about the small things, you're going to have a small heart. You're going to have a small heart and you're going to go around being nitpicky about other people. But if you are majoring on the majors in your heart, you're going to have a big heart. God does not care if you come to church regularly, share the gospel regularly, carefully tithe, memorize scripture. If you're just an insensitive, uncaring, intimidating pain in the neck to be around. You're going to hold all these up before God and say, look, look at my doctrine, look at my theology, look at my Bible reading plan, look at everything that I do. And Jesus is going to say, do you even love people? That's what he's saying here. Beware of getting the little things right while getting the big things wrong. That leads us to our third point. And this is in verses 27 through 28. If we are going to fight against being Pharisees, legalists, traditionalists at heart. Number one, we need to beware of placing our application of the law above the heart of the law. Number two, we need to beware of getting little things right while getting the big things wrong. And then these last two verses, we need to joyfully submit to Jesus as Lord of all. Number three, if we're going to not be Pharisees, then we need to joyfully submit to Jesus as Lord of all. He says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man's enjoyment and not man's enslavement. You should be coming to the Sabbath saying, yes, I'm so glad it's finally the Sabbath. You shouldn't be coming to the Sabbath saying, man, the Sabbath again? So many people were coming to the Sabbath viewing it like a Monday. I don't want to see the Sabbath again. I want it to be Friday. Jesus says, you've twisted this around. I gave you a day that was supposed to give you grace and you've turned it into a burden, not a blessing. The Pharisees just reversed Genesis 50-20. You know Genesis 50-20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. They reversed it. What God meant for good, they turned it into evil. 
The Pharisees turned the Sabbath into this burden. And so Jesus is arguing that the tradition of the Pharisees is unduly stringent and exceeds the intention of God's very law. The Sabbath was made to benefit man. And if you're making the laws more important than the welfare of the people, you're missing the heart of God behind those laws. But then the conversation changes in verse 28. So, because of everything that's been said, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The conversation changes from laws of the Sabbath to the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is identifying himself as the one who instituted the Sabbath, as the one who made the Sabbath. And we know from Genesis that the one who made the Sabbath is God. So Jesus is saying, I am God. There's really a question of authority. That's why the Pharisees came to Jesus in the first place. You see in this text, Jesus is not picking the heads of grain. It doesn't say explicitly that he's doing that. The disciples are doing that. And so the Pharisees come and they say, in essence, you claim to be a good rabbi. So you know that it's wrong for your disciples to do this. And yet you have no authority over them. You probably already told them. You probably already said, hey guys, we shouldn't do that. And they're like, who's this guy? The Pharisees are saying, Jesus, you have no authority. You're not a good rabbi. And Jesus says, I'm not just a rabbi. I'm God. I'm God. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Interesting side note is the Pharisees would call themselves the lords over the Sabbath. They would say, we are the ones who have control over it because we have taken the rabbinical traditions. We've written all this down. So we can tell you what not to do, what to do. We are lords of the Sabbath. And Jesus says, no, I am the Lord, only Lord. We have no middle ground. Again, we've seen this time and time again in the Gospel of Mark. Either Jesus is God or he's lying or he's crazy. But there's no middle ground. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and his lordship, by definition, knows no boundaries. There is no area of our lives where he is not master. We need to joyfully submit to him as Lord over all. If we're going to fight against prideful, pharisaical tendencies in our hearts, number one, we need to be aware of placing our application of the law above the heart of the law. Number two, we need to be aware of getting little things right while getting the big things wrong. And number three, we need to joyfully submit to Jesus as Lord. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about the old wineskin and the new wine. Jesus is saying, I have come to do away with your application of the law, with your pharisaical Relig uh, religious traditionalism, your legalistic understanding of the law. I've come to do away with that. You can't fit the gospel into your traditions. Here again, Jesus is saying, this is really a, a narrative outworking of his teaching of the new wine and the old wineskins. This is Jesus saying, you have your pharisaical traditions about the Sabbath and you cannot fit me into that. I have not come to reform your religion. Just needs a little tweak and then we'll be okay. No, I've come to destroy your human efforts and to destroy your religion and replace it with myself. He came to abolish human religion and show us the grace of God. And in doing so, he shows us deep inside this text that there are actually two 
radically different spiritual paradigms that people can buy into. How do you follow rules? The rules that God has given. There's two ways that we can follow them. Either we follow God's rules as burdens or we follow God's rules as delights. Imagine two people standing next to Jesus. Both want to keep the Sabbath. But for one, obedience to the Sabbath is a burden. And to the other, obedience to the Sabbath is the delight. For one, obedience is a burden. For the other, obedience is the delight. It's the same law. They're both trying to keep it. But one of them sees it as a burden and one sees it as a delight. How can that be? Here's why. Because to the one, it's religion. It's advice. To the other, it's gospel and good news. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is news. Advice puts a burden on you. News takes the burden away. Most people think that if there is a God, you relate to him by being good. There are so many different forms this can take, but all of them have the same logic behind their heart. If I perform, then I will be accepted. And the gospel says no. The gospel is diametrically opposed to this by saying you are only fully accepted by Jesus' performance, not by yours. You can do nothing to earn a right standing before the law, before the Lord. No amount of law keeping will get you saved. In religion, the purpose of obeying the law is to assure that you're right with God. I obey in order to make me right with God. And as a result, when you come to the law, what you're most concerned about is every single detail of the law because you want to make sure you keep it in order to be right with God. But in the life of a Christian, the law of God, though absolutely still binding on us, functions in a completely different way. It shows me, the law of God now shows me how to live a life of love that would most display God's character to a watching world and most encourage and comfort the people around me with the love of Jesus. It shows you the life of love that you want to live before the God of love who has done so much for you. And so through the gospel, Jesus says, I'm giving you a completely different way of keeping these laws. It's not a burden anymore. It's a delight. He frees us from legalistic pressure so that we can joyfully obey. Legalism is destructive because it breeds death rather than life. Legalism is seductive because it has a natural allure for the flesh that causes us to look to ourselves rather than to Christ for our spiritual status before God. Legalism is deceptive because it makes us think that we are spiritually elite when we're actually spiritual slaves. Legalism looks for shortcomings in others in order to condemn them. It doesn't look for the good in others. It looks for the good in yourself and the bad in others. Instead, uh, somebody who has been absolutely undone by the gospel will do the exact opposite. Look for the good in others and look for the bad in myself. One good test of whether or not you're a Pharisee is how much you laugh. Pharisees don't laugh a lot. They don't find a lot of things funny. Pharisees actually go around looking at other people saying, that's not funny. Pharisees have no joy. They just have a whole lot of religion. And the gospel, when the gospel penetrates your heart and changes you, the gospel gives you the greatest joy in the world, makes you laugh a lot, and also makes you laugh at yourself, right? The gospel makes me laugh at myself because I know, God knows, that I am more wicked than any of you all know, and yet God loves me more than any of you all do. 
That's what the gospel does in my life. And so therefore, I can totally own, I'm a weirdo. And we can all laugh together at that because I'm accepted by God and I don't have to perform to earn that acceptance. Jesus did it all for me. Jesus cares about laws. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely true. He cares about the Sabbath. What he doesn't care about is their worthless traditions. Jesus shows them what the Sabbath is about, but even more so, he shows them who the Sabbath is about. He is the whole point of the Sabbath, to receive and rest in the provision of God. It's not just an economical uh, pursuit. It's spiritual. Jesus is saying, when he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I am the Sabbath. I not only invented it, but it's all about me. He is the source of deep rest that we need. He has completely come, uh, has come to completely change the way that we rest. When Jesus calls us to rest, he's calling us to take time off, to rest from our labors that we've been trying over and over again to perform in order to earn his favor. But there's something more to rest than just being tired. So many people make the Sabbath just about being tired. When God rested in Genesis 1, it wasn't because he was tired. God doesn't get tired. Why did he rest? It's because he looked at all that he had done and he was finished and he was satisfied and he says, I can be done. I can cease. It's the same thing about the Sabbath for us. The Pharisees and other legalistic people are weary even when they're resting. But true believers are truly resting even when they're exerting themselves to the point of exhaustion because there truly is a work underneath our work that we need to rest from. And that work is the work of self-justification, the work that would lead us to religion. And the only way that we can have our hearts changed to love Jesus, to throw away our religious efforts is through the power of the gospel, through what Jesus did on the cross, through the empty tomb, and through the ascension where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus worked so we could rest in him. Jesus declared it is finished so that we could rest in all that he has accomplished on our behalf. He died, he was buried, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven to ensure that if we come to him in faith, renouncing all self-reliance and trusting wholly in him, we will be saved. On the cross, Jesus experienced the deep restlessness of separation from God so that we can have the deepest rest that we have ever known, knowing that God loves us and has forgiven us of all of our sin. So I would just plead with you, trust in him. Embrace the glorious gospel that he provides and stand in that one gospel until he calls us safely home. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the awesome privilege of seeing Jesus and seeing the way that he stands before the Pharisees and points out everything that they are doing wrong and in doing so points out where we struggle, where we fail. And Father, I do pray that we in great humility would come before you now and just say we need divine assistance to receive the glory of the gospel and to be forever changed by looking at laws no longer as burdens but as delights. Help us to do that now even as we sing.
We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.